Now there's like 35 more seats. <laughs> Works out perfect. You know, some have said, why don't we just start with the children down and we like them in. We want them to be in with us as much as we can. Uh, we love them singing the songs with us, experiencing uh, just the time in the gathering with us. Uh, so, today we're starting a new series. It's in the book of Job, and I'm very excited about it. And my kids on the way here were like, Dad, you're always excited. <laughs> Nothing really new about that. Um, but I am. I, I, do, I do love preaching the Word of God, and I love starting new series because I love how every book of the Bible just addresses various things in which the way that we live, it talks about God and the gospel, and it's, it's just all addressing certain issues in just a little bit different way and just leading us into the worship of our God that we truly would know that he's worthy of all glory and honor. And so I do. I love preaching. I love starting new series. But I'm also excited. I don't think, well, I've never preached a series in Job, and I'm pretty sure I've never preached a single sermon from the book of Job. So uh, that's all going to change now because we're going to be in here for the next nine or ten weeks. Now here's something I find interesting about the book of Job. Everyone knows the story. Everyone knows the story. Everyone knows that there's a guy named Job, and, and he has everything and then through, through a series of trials and sufferings, he loses everything. And then at the end of the story, he's restored all that he had and even more. People will doubt. They will deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. But everyone has the book of Job on their bookshelf, whether you're a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Hindu, a Christian, or an atheist, or just about anyone uh, from any background or worldview. In fact, even Hollywood will understand the importance of the book of Job. Uh, 1996, Mission Impossible. Anyone remember that? It references the book of Job. Like the book of Job will show up in all different places in our culture. Now the book of Job um, belongs to what's called wisdom literature. Other books in the Bible would be like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. These books are not so much concerned with going from Genesis to Revelation and understanding the unfolding redemptive plan of God. That's not their primary focus. Their primary focus is just to, to look at the world, where we're at today, and wrestle with different truths and realities that we experience. And in particular, Job wrestles with, with suffering, with evil, and with injustice in this world. Now these are, these are all things that we know something about. In fact, from this pulpit, we have said many times, you are either in a trial, going in a trial, or coming out of a trial. And basically what we're saying, our lives revolve around trials. That's, what, that's what, how we see life. Our life just revolves around them, and we know this truth. Many of you know the pain of, of losing a loved one, whether that's a child, a spouse, or a parent. Many of you know the pain of, of, of a miscarriage or a stillbirth. Many of you know the pain of, of cancer and other diseases. Many of you know the, the pain and hurt of a divorce or being betrayed, being lied to, being slandered. Many of you know the pain of having possessions stolen. Many of you know the pain of natural disasters like floods and tornadoes and the damages that they can cause to our life and our families. Many of you know the pain of war. 
I mean, we're not, we're not strangers to what suffering and what trials are. We know injustice. We see injustice, whether it's been in our life, in one another's life, or just simply in the world around us. But there's really, really good news. God's word is not silent when it comes to pain and suffering and evil and, and injustice. He's given us his Bible in particular. He's given us his, the book of Job, 42 chapters long, to help us understand these realities. And Job is not a book that you would necessarily pull out if you're sunbathing on a beach. It's not that type of book. Job is about getting your hands dirty. It's about wrestling with the world we live in. But Job's not only about suffering, it's also about something so much more. It's about God. Job forces us to wrestle with who God is and how is it that he runs the world that we live in. And it challenges the very boxes that sometimes we put God in. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes we say, well, God operates like this. And then you read the book of Job and you go, huh, well, that's weird. Maybe he doesn't operate in such a clean, neat box as what I thought. Job is given to us so we can trust God no matter what storm comes our way. And that's why the, the tagline to the theme of this, uh, of this series is trusting God in the darkness. One of my jobs as a pastor, uh, the elder's role, is to equip the church, encourage the church with the truths of God's word that no matter what storm comes our way, we would hold true to the anchor of God. And there are storms that sometimes we see dark clouds coming. When we lived in Lake Michigan, we could see the, we lived on the eastern side, so we would see the clouds coming over the lake towards us. It's like, storm's coming. It's coming. I mean, we, we see it. We can say, well, we got 30 minutes. We know it's coming. And then there's like flash floods where they just hit you fast. No warning. It's just there upon you. But Job is given that our faith would be anchored not in our comforts, not in our philosophies and ideologies, but in the rock, God. And so today, we're simply just setting the stage. We're only looking at five verses. Everything else, we're going to be looking at chapters at a time. But today, we're just going to be kicking it off. And the main point this morning is you are created for something far more satisfying and glorious than present earthly comforts. This is what we're going to say. You're created for something far more satisfying than present earthly comforts. And so uh, why don't you go ahead and stand with me, and we're going to read Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Here at Timberline, we, we stand at the reading of God's word. We do so just to remind ourselves that this book is like none other, to honor our God who has given it to us. So here we go, Job 1, 1 through 5. There was a man in the land of Uz, his name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the day of the feast had run their course, Job would send and, con would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and, and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. 
For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Let me pray. Father, Father, I just ask for your wisdom today. Lord, I, I believe Job is just such an incredible book that you have given us, and it speaks so much into our lives today with all the things that we have happening. We need to know this message. We need to know this truth. Lord, as we sang earlier, we question. We question, is, is there a God worthy? Is there a God glorious? Is there a God who can open up the seals? Is there a God who is in control and in charge of all of this world? And sometimes we think that there is not. Sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we are struck with fear. And yet the book of Job is a gift of grace from you that our hearts would be comforted, our hearts would be strengthened. So I just pray where, where everyone is just this morning in whatever condition they come in, that your spirit would use your word as a means of comfort and encouragement today. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So I just want to start out. There's certain things that we don't know about the book of Job that we're uncertain about. Like, who wrote the book of Job? We don't know. When did Job take place? We don't know. I mean, we could just say that for like a lot of things. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have any good, informed uh, uh, decisions on, on these things. Most likely, Job took place during the patriarchal period, like, like the life of Abraham. In fact, Job 42, 16 says that after these trials that he will go through, he lives for another 140 years. So that seems to be post-flood, and that seems to be within the lifespan of <clears throat> what we see the patriarchs. Where does Job take place? In the land of Uz. Now, when you hear that, what do you think of? Oz, yeah, every time. It's not Oz, and we're not going to Kansas. Um, sorry, Chris. Uh, it's the land of Uz. Where is that? I don't know. Uh, it could be Kansas. Uh, very likely it's south of Jordan. In Lamentations chapter 4, verse 21, it references uh, the land of Uz and the land of Edom. So most likely, so that'd be south of Jordan, outside of the promised land. Now, the fact that Job, the book, doesn't address those things, that's not what wisdom literature does. When you're in the book of Proverbs or Song of Solomon, it doesn't necessarily address those things. What what this book is about, it's about wrestling with the world we live in and making sense of it. And so let's look at the very things that we do know. Number one, Job is a genuine believer in God. Now, that might seem like an obvious point, one that's, that's not even necessary to mention, but it is. We need to know this truth. If you don't know this truth from the beginning, it'll twist the entire way you understand the book of Job. So it's very intentional in Job 1 and 2. The author wants us to know Job is a believer. After Job, because um, he's going to lose everything, his possessions, his family, and even his health. And there's going to be these three guys that come. They're called his friends or his comforters. They're like the anti-friends or anti-comforters. It's it better to think of them like that. And they're going to come and they're going to say, Job, you've suffered because you've committed a really great sin. You've suffered because you have all these hidden sins and dark rooms in your life that you thought you could keep hidden, but really 
You don't love God. Really, you're an unbeliever. And so God has now brought all of this pain upon you. But what the writer wants us to know is that no, Job is a believer. And he's not just a believer. He loves God with all of his heart. He's absolutely fully devoted. And we see that because in verse 1, we're given four qualities of Job. We see that he's blameless. This means Job is genuine. He's authentic. He doesn't have dark and secret areas in his life. When you see Job, what you see is what you get. He's upright. That word speaks about our relationship with one another. It means he's honest. He's not going to lie or deceive. He fears God. All throughout the Bible, we see that to be a godly person, uh, that godly people fear God. To fear God means you rightly know God, you rightly live for God, you're devoted to God. In fact, in Psalm 25, 14, we read this, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Now, this isn't a fear of being afraid, it's a fear of those who worship him, who love him. And we see that Job turns away from evil. Job hates sin. He is godly, he is a godly man. He strives to do what is right, whether he's in public or in private. And then we're given an example of Job's godliness in verses four and five. His sons and his daughters, so that they gather regularly for a feast. Now, this is not like a frat party that they're doing here. Some commentaries were like, oh, they're just, they're coming together and just getting into a drunken stupor, and that's why Job comes. No, that's not what's being presented here. They're coming together, and they're having feasts and festivals. Maybe it's on birthdays, maybe it's on anniversaries, whatever it is that they celebrate, and they're coming, and then notice what Job does after every time they gather together for a feast. Like a priest, he comes and he offers up a sacrifice on behalf of his family. You say, well, why? Why does he do that? At the end of verse 5, we read, Job was concerned that one of his children might have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Like Job, Job cannot stand the idea of himself or anyone in his family cursing God or living in sin. And so he He's devoted to God. He's making sacrifices to God just in case something has happened. So I ask you, what is the writer wanting us to think about Job in these verses? What's he wanting us to know? He wants us to see that Job is a genuine believer in God. And if we fail to, to understand that here, two more times in chapters one and chapter two, God himself will declare that Job is blameless, upright, fears God, and turns away from evil. So this, we're given a testimony from the narrator at this moment, and then later, in chapters one and chapter two, we're gonna be given a testimony from God himself that there is no one greater than Job. So when we read a, a description like this, one thing that we can also do is say, am I a genuine believer? Am I devoted to God? How would someone describe my life and my godliness? And so I just want to encourage you. Are you growing in your in blamelessness? Are you upright? Are you fearing God? Are you turning away from that which is evil? Because when you believe in Christ, he gives you the spirit within you. He's given us his word that he would lead us in godliness. And so that as we grow, we ought to, in a sense, sin less. Sin less. Not be sinless, but sin less. And desire his glory more and more. Now, there's something else that we need to see. Second point is Job 
enjoys the favor of God. So he's a believer, and we see he enjoys the favor of God. Verse 2, we see that Job has been blessed with a large family. He has 10 kids. I don't know if you guys have that many brothers and sisters, but the only thing I can think of with that many is I get confused with my three kids now, like calling them the right name. Do you ever do that? Could you imagine if you had 10? It would just be helpless. Just name them all the same name. I don't know. But he's got 10 children, seven sons, three daughters. Maybe, perhaps, the numbers seven and 10 speak of perfection and completeness also. Possibly here. And then in verse three, Job is presented as a king. In verses four and five, he's kind of presented as a priest. Now he's presented as a king. We're told that he has 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and many, many, many servants. And just so we don't miss the point, we're then told he's the greatest of all the people in the East. Now remember, Job's outside the promised land. If inside the promised land, Abraham would be considered the greatest person. Outside the promised land, we have this guy, Job. And he's the greatest person in all of the East. Job is well known. Everyone in town recognizes Job and honors him. When he walks into town, people go, that's Job. That's Job. And if he talks to you, they go, he talked to me. Like Job knows my name. If Job invites you over for dinner, you don't check your schedule. You're free. Like, you just show up. Yes, Job, I'll, I'll be there. Yep, whatever you want, Job. He is a powerful man, but he's a godly man. He's a good man. He's a humble man. His life is blessed. God's favor is clearly upon him. He has what we would consider a picture-perfect life, which is our title this morning. That's how Job looks. That's, that's the way the author wants us to understand this person. And I think Job is a picture of how we think and want the world to operate. I think about this. If you do good, you get good. If you do evil, you get evil. In John chapter 9, there was, there was a man who was born blind, and so the disciples turned to Jesus and said, Who sinned, this man or that man? Like We, we know somebody did something wrong here. Because he's born blind. We often assume that bad things happen to bad people. You do this, right? Uh, disaster, your child comes in and, and says, you know, I, I didn't do good on my, my test. Well, what, what'd you do? Did you not study? I crashed the car. Well, what'd you do? Did you run a light? Did you run a stop sign? Was it your fault? Like we, we automatically assume always if something bad happens, it's because you did something bad. We think that good and evil that comes our way is in some way proportion to the good or evil that we have done. We operate that way. And this is what Job's friends will say. So Eliphaz, these are great names. Um, Job 4, 7, and 8. He'll say, remember who that was innocent ever perished. Or where, or where were the upright cut off? Have I have seen those who plow iniquity sow trouble and reap the same? So Eliphaz turns to so Job says, do the innocent really suffer, Job? I mean, do, are, the, are the upright ever cut off? Do they have bad things happen to them? Come on, I think we know. If you do something bad, something bad's going to happen. Bildad, in Job chapter 8, 
Verses three and five. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy. So Bildad's not the guy you want to come over after his disaster. Well, you know, I mean, your, your children kind of deserved it. But that's what he's saying. God doesn't pervert justice. Their assumption is that whenever there is something wrong, God immediately brings justice to that moment. Zophar, in chapter 11, will say, for you say, he's talking about Job, for you say, Job, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then, God actually exacts less of you than what you deserve. These are his friends or, or anti-friends. And do you notice how Zophar mocks him? You, you think you know anything, Job? You think you know God? I wish God would speak to you right now that you could actually hear his wisdom. You deserve far more than what you got. Far more, because you are a wicked man, Job. But I want you to think. Is that how the world operates? Are the wicked always punished? Are the good always rewarded? Is justice perfectly handed out in all times and all places? Is good and evil always given in proportion to what we have done? You know the answer. No. Often the wicked prosper and the godly suffer. In fact, we see that truth all throughout Scripture. In fact, Job himself, he will say this. In chapter 10, he will say, I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress and despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Job's going, I didn't do anything. Now, he's not saying he's sinless. He's not saying he's never done anything. But he's saying, I didn't do anything that should have brought these evils upon me. Job 24 he says, why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do those who know him never see his days? Job's saying, like, I, I'm worshiping you. Where, where's your judgment? Don't you keep that? Shouldn't that be dealt rightly? And Job's not the only one who sees injustice. Again, we see this all throughout Scripture. A couple years ago, we were in the book of Habakkuk. We preached through Habakkuk. And, and this is how that book begins. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2. He said, Habakkuk cries out to God, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry out for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. He's basically saying, I'm wanting you to do something. There's violence everywhere. Where are you, God? Where are you? Like, where's the justice? Why is it not coming? In this life, justice is not always dealt quickly and in proportion to the right or wrong committed. We need to know that. And if you're a parent, you need to make sure your kids know this truth. Don't raise little Pharisees. Don't raise little Bildad, Bildad Zophars, and Eliphazes. Really, don't name them that. Like, there's a reason certain names aren't used again. It's a good thing not to name your kid Eliphaz or Delilah or, you know, any of those. Um, Help your children understand that life's not fair and that rewards and punishments don't always come in proportion. Teach them grace. 
I want you to think about this. Sometimes our kids do some, some pretty crazy things. How do we teach them grace? How do we teach them that we don't always get what we deserve? I'm not saying there shouldn't be consequences for, act, for actions, but maybe at times we should even sing, how do we cover this with grace? How do we blow our kids away with grace? They know they're guilty. They know they did something wrong. How do we lavish grace upon them and then say, that's what Jesus has done for us? Help them to see that in this world, good and evil is not always in proportion to what we do. And I want to encourage you, if you're suffering right now, if you're in the midst of a trial, if you feel like there are dark clouds that have descended upon you, then it may be because of some sin you've committed. There might be some consequences. But it very well may not be because of any sin that you've committed. Some of you will search for sin like a witch hunt, trying to understand the trial that you are in. And, and you pray about it, and you're praying like, like David does in Psalm, search me and know if there's any wicked way in me. Reveal to me whatever sin. And you don't hear anything from God, you're not seeing anything, so then you go to maybe a few friends, godly counsel, and you say, is there anything wrong in me? Do you see sin? And what you're in essence trying to do, like, like what's happening in my life right now? What did I do that God is bringing these disciplines in on me? What, what is it? And if your friends say, well, no, we, we don't see anything either, you still just keep digging as if God's hiding something from you. Listen, God's not trying to hide sin from you. He's not saying, well, maybe if you pray harder. Maybe if you really mean it this time. No, there are times what we see in God's word, like here, there are things that come our way that's not in proportion to the good or the evil that we have done. Not every trial, suffering, and pain you experience is directly related to a sin you have committed. Do, do you get that? Like We need to know that. That affects the way we counsel people. That affects the way we listen to people. That affects the way we think about people. We need to know this because there are many false teachings taking place in so-called churches that pervert the gospel, distort the character of God, and destroy the lives of people every single day. In fact, I want to touch on one of them this morning because I think it's, it's very relevant to the book of Job, and it's the prosperity gospel. And maybe you've heard of that, but Job is a landmine for the prosperity gospel. Like, there's no way the prosperity gospel survives the book of Job. It just doesn't. Like if you know, prosperity gospel is what's preached in some of the largest churches in America and it spreads like wildfire in other parts of the world. It's led by figures like Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Joel Olstein, and many, many, many more. The prosperity gospel says if you have enough faith, if you do what is right, God will lavish his blessings upon you. The, gospel, uh, the prosperity gospel says you can have heaven on earth right now. That's God's will for you. It places your comfort and your happiness as paramount to everything. And the reason you don't have all the blessings of God is because you simply don't have enough faith. The reason you suffer and bad things happen is because you don't believe enough in God. The prosperity gospel places an impossible weight upon every single person that no one can hold. Now just, just, just pause now, just think about it. Think about the book of Job. Is prosperity gospel right? Is it true? 
Does Job suffer because he doesn't have enough faith? Does Job suffer because he doesn't believe enough in God? No, we are literally told he is blameless, he's upright, he fears God, he turns away from evil, he's the greatest man in all the East. He is one of the greatest, in fact, in verse eight, if you look, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth. So we don't have a guy who's like wrestling with his faith at this moment. Job's not a guy going, man, if only he had more faith, these bad things wouldn't happen. Job is a guy we're all looking towards going, I want to be like that guy. Man, his faith, his, his belief in God is an anchor in everything that he does. And so if the prosperity gospel is right, you need to rip out the book of Job from your Bibles and probably every other book also. Because it just doesn't make sense. But here's the sad truth. There are many people who abandon the church today. They're deconstructing their faith because they've been subject to perversions of God's word. They've been told the world operates in a certain way. Do good, get good. Do evil, get evil. But then at some point, reality hits them and they say, wait, that's not what happens. That's not how the world works. But they've been told from the church with the Bible that this is what happens. And so what do you think they do? They either abandon the faith altogether, just run as far as they can from church, never wanting to go back to the church, or they, they do what you've probably heard is deconstruct. Is they, they start taking away parts of their faith, and they say, well, I don't believe this, I don't believe this, I don't believe this, and they, they pick and choose what they want to believe, and then they'll pick and choose from different worldviews, and then they'll make their own new belief system, and they'll say, well, this is what I believe now, because this makes sense to me, and this makes me feel safe. We see that all throughout the world, because God's word is being twisted and perverted, but listen, Christianity is not a buffet. We don't get to pick and choose what we want. We need to know God's word. In fact, Paul, in the book of Colossians, he's, he's writing it to the church of Colossae, and he, he presents this beautiful picture of Jesus in the first chapter, and he unpacks the gospel for them. And then in chapter two, verse four, he says, I've told you all of this so that you will not be deluded by plausible arguments. Meaning, I don't want you to be led astray. It's when we know the truth of God's word that when we hear false teachings, our ears will be alerted and will not fall victim to it. The more we know the word, the more we, we taste and smell those things that don't taste and smell right. You know what I'm saying? So recently, uh, we, we do, I don't know what it's called. We, we, we order online for Walmart, right? And you show up and they just give you stuff. It's, it's a great system. You don't even go in the store anymore. But the problem is, is if they don't have what you want, they'll figure out what you want or what they think you want. Sometimes that works for your advantage. Sometimes it doesn't. So in our house, ice cream is like the holy grail. We love ice cream. Every, every even breakfast, my kids are like, can we have ice cream? No, you, you can't have ice cream for breakfast. What about for lunch? What about for snack? What about for dinner? What about for fourth dinner? Like all the time, like can we have ice cream? I'm not gonna name which daughter of mine says this, but there's one of them that says this. I'm just, you just figure it out on your own. But recently we, we did this Walmart order and they gave us something different than chocolate sauce. 
We always order chocolate sauce. I mean, that's, that's like the necessary ingredient for ice cream. We love ice cream. It's, again, it's wonderful. I'm dreaming of it. Um, so my, my son or daughter, I don't even remember which one, they grab it and they just pour it on. They're so happy. Ice cream. Dad said yes. Dad doesn't always say yes. They get their spoon, big scoop, and they're like, oh, something doesn't taste right. Instantly. They know it's not the ice cream. They grab the chocolate sauce. What? Sugar-free. <laughs> like, what, what's sugar-free chocolate? Like, that doesn't even make sense. Look, that, that chocolate sauce didn't make it long in my house. It's probably already in some garbage heap somewhere. Um, when we know what's right, we taste what's different. You know what I mean? Like when we know it, when we taste it, when we see the truth on a daily basis, something else comes. We're like, that's not right. And that's, that's why we spend so much time in the Word. That's why we, we want to preach this Word each and every week. That's why we encourage Bible studies. That's why we encourage you to have your own Bible time each and every day. That's why we do uh, Bible studies here at the church. We do discipleship groups, which are just all about how do we just saturate ourselves in the Word, that we'd know the Word, we'd smell the truth, we'd taste the truth, we'd see the truth. So if anything comes that doesn't smell like this, we know. And what do we do? We throw it away like sugar-free chocolate sauce. It has no place in our life or in our home or in our refrigerator. Let me, let me read. Here's a quote from Charles Spurgeon. I think this is up on, on the screen. This is what we read. Charles Spurgeon says, Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the word of the Lord. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it till we have taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let the eyes glance over the, over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions or the historic facts, but is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scripture models and what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. And that's my prayer. That's my prayer for me. That's my prayer for you as a church. Let that prayer be for us. That we would know this word. And ultimately, what we see in the book of Job and in every book of the Bible, it ultimately leads us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to think about this. Job ultimately points us to the truth of the gospel of Jesus. Job is presented to us as a king. He's presented as a priest. In the book of James, in the New Testament, the brother of Jesus in John, James chapter 5, will say James, Job is like a prophet. So we're told from Scripture, Job is like a priest, a king, and a prophet, and he's blameless. This man is righteous. He's a man who has everything. He's full of glory. And yet, he loses everything, suffers unjustly. And then at the end of the book, which we will see in a few weeks, is that he is restored to his former glory. In fact, he even is more glorious than before, where he experiences the favor and blessings of God. Do you see a pattern there? Jesus is the perfect king, the perfect priest, the perfect prophet that the entire 
Bible is leading us towards. Jesus is blameless and righteous. And blameless for Jesus doesn't mean, you know, that he's, uh, that he has, it means that he has no sin. For us to be blameless, it doesn't mean that we are not sinless. It just means that we're striving after God. But for Jesus, he literally is without sin. And we see that he dwells in all glory and all splendor and all majesty and the presence of the Father in heaven. But then he lays aside his glory. He willingly comes to earth like you and me, born as a human, walks this world for 30 plus years where he eventually will be arrested and treated unjustly, where he will suffer far more than any person, Job or anyone else, has ever suffered because he will suffer the full wrath of God. And then three days later, he will rise again, proving his victory over death, over sin, and that anyone who believes in him would be forgiven of their sins and given everlasting life. We're then told, and we said it in the Apostles' Creed, he ascended to the right hand of God the Father, where now he sits in glory and splendor. You see the pattern of Job? What's it leading us to? You won't actually understand the book of Job until you begin to see it's a pattern leading us to a much greater person, Jesus Christ. Listen, you are created for something far more satisfying and far more glorious than present earthly comforts. Otherwise, the story of Job would end at verse five. We'd be done. We just preached through a whole book. Call it good. Cars, houses, cell phones, possessions, finances, relationships, they're all gifts. They're all gifts. And Satan would love nothing more than for you to be distracted by those things. He wants you to think that those things are paramount. Those are the greatest things in your life. There's nothing more than, if only you could have the next job promotion, the newer car, the better house, the next, 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 whatever it is. Satan wants us to be distracted. He wants you to think that those are what you were created for. But all throughout scripture, we see we were created for something far, far greater. The comforts in this world compare, pale in comparison to the glory that awaits us. I just want to read one more text. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. This is, what, this is what Peter says. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. I'd, let that comfort you. Like There's going to be things that come your way. Shouldn't it be strange? If we know the word, it shouldn't be strange. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Why? Because that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Do you know glory's coming? Do you get that glory is coming? Glory is Jesus. Jesus is coming. And when Jesus returns, he says, I will gather the church, my bride, my body, and I will gather them to be with me, and they will be glorified. They will see me as I see them, and they will be made like me. They will be sinless. They will sit on my throne, and they will dwell with me and enjoy my glory and my presence with the Father for all of eternity. It's like that's what we're created for. We're created for the very glory of God. And all the gifts and all the things and all the comforts and pleasures are merely little shadows pointing us something much, much, much greater and more glorious. You're created for something far more glorious. So Job's going to help us to see that. He's going to see these things are all 
fading in this world. But the one thing that's not fading is our glorious inheritance with God. It's unfading, it's imperishable, it's kept in heaven by God himself for you. That we would share in that glory. And so as we go through the next eight to nine weeks, Job's gonna help us to understand suffering. He wants us to be like what Peter's saying. We shouldn't be surprised. We should understand who this God is. And so I just want to throw out a few things, like more of a preview of what you're going to see. You don't have to write them down because we're going to unpack them a lot as we go through. Suffering is never outside the control of God. It's never outside the control of God. We'll see that front and center next week. Suffering is not in proportion to our goodness. It's not in proportion to our goodness. Suffering accomplishes great purposes. Listen, there would be no salvation without the suffering of Christ. Do you know that? No one's saved without suffering. No one. So just, just remind yourself, we don't often see how there's anything good in suffering and pain. And we might never on this side of heaven, but you can rest assured God is in control. He's accomplishing something far greater than you ever would imagine. And suffering reminds us of our need for Jesus. Because he is coming to put an end to all suffering, all pain, all injustices. That all who believe in him would live in his perfect kingdom, enjoying his glory for all time. So I hope you'll be able to join us as we make our way through the rest of the book of Job. I'm going to pray, and the men are going to come forward, and they're going to dismiss you row by row that we would take communion together. Let me pray. Father, Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the book of Job. And Lord, it is, it's a long book, 42 chapters, a lot of poetry. It's hard. It's difficult. But God, give us wisdom. Oh God, may our eyes be open and that we may, may we see the truths of your word in 8K, that we would understand them and that we would love them and that our lives would be transformed because of what we read in your word. And may we know your word and love your word so much that anything that might sound close but not truthful, we'd be alert to and we would not be deluded by those arguments. God, give us a love and a passion for your word. And God, ultimately, may Job lead us to a greater love for the gospel of your son, Jesus the perfect man who came, lived a perfect life and suffered unjustly, bearing your wrath so that we who believe could have everlasting life. May, we, may the book of Job lead us to the gospel, that we love the gospel all the more. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen.